The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Jed Fahey. He is a nutritional biochemist with broad training and extensive background in plant physiology, human nutrition, phytochemistry, and nutritional biochemistry. He spent 27 years as a faculty member at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And until retiring in mid-2020, he ran the Coleman Chemo Protection Center, which he helped to create and which has for many years developed plant-based agents for the purpose of enhancing health span. Welcome, Dr. Fahey. We spoke years ago about Moringa, and I am thrilled to have you back to talk about cruciferous vegetables today. Melinda, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. So why don't we start out by my asking you, what got you interested in nutritional biochemistry, and what is that exactly? Oh, Lordy, that's too long a story. It starts when I was in high school or college and thought I could feed the world with microalgae and got disabused of that pretty early on, although it's still a dream of mine. But over the years, I really, seriously, there are a lot of inputs to the answer to this. Over the years, the concept that one gets protein, carbohydrate, fat, and fiber from what one eats, and the complete ignorance of the phytochemical, not ignorance, but the complete sort of avoidance by the nutritional establishment of talking about phytochemicals or phytonutrients bothered me more and more over the years, which leads me to a definition I should make right now. When we talk about phytochemicals, we talk about all the things that make all plants the distinctive color that they are, various plant organs like leaves, flowers, seeds, etc. Gives them aroma, gives them flavor, taste. It's basically everything except those vitamins, minerals, and proteins, carbohydrates, fat, and fiber. And phytochemicals have been called recently by someone else, I didn't coin the term, but called the dark matter of nutrition because there are, by various estimates, between 50,000, which is a very lowball estimate, and something like 5 or 10 million different phytochemicals in the world of edible plants or the world of plants. So these are a huge resource, and our bodies use that resource for defense, for chronic disease prevention. So our human nutrition, our metabolism, co-ops or use these phytochemicals. Just one more thing, they're present at very low levels in the plant. So they're not present in percentages. They're fractions of a percent, very small fractions of a percent of the total mass of plants. So probably one of the phytochemicals that people are most familiar with have been for the last 30 years are the cannabinoids in cannabis. And those are actually, I don't know the the level, they're present at quite high levels in the exudates of the leaf glands. But most phytochemicals are, you know, you wouldn't notice them unless you ran them through an analytical lab or you opened your eyes and looked at the plants or you smelled them or you tasted them. 
all that stuff intrigues the heck out of me. And so that's, I guess, why I am where I am. Well, it intrigues me as well. And I think that the marriage of plant physiology and human nutrition is really exciting to fully understand the benefits of plant-based foods. And I think over the past decade, we have really focused on moving towards a more plant-based diet. And we think, what are the reasons? Well, the phytochemicals are these plant compounds that are beneficial in preventing a host of chronic diseases, as well as the fiber. And both of these groups of compounds seem to be acting specifically with our gut microbiota. So I love that you're bringing both of these pieces of insight forward. I wanted to talk to you about cruciferous vegetables in particular, because I recently heard you give a webinar on the topic, and I thought, let's focus on that. But before we do, I want to just say something about phytochemicals or plant chemicals in the fruits and vegetables that we eat. And that has to do with the variables. So for example, there's been research through the Rodale Institute, for example, showing that when plants are grown in an organic matter, so crops that are grown in composted rich soil, no herbicides or pesticides applied, those plants seem to have an advantage when it comes to phytochemical protection compared to those which are sprayed regularly. I'm curious about those relationships, like something's going on in the soil, in the root system that ultimately really serve to protect them, but also us. Right. So, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head and we could stop there without my elaborating. But one of the things I guess I didn't mention when I was giving you my definition of phytochemicals or Lately, I've started to call them phytonutrients because so many people in the lay public get a little turned off when they hear the word chemical, but they are chemicals. I mean, the world is made of chemicals. So what you said is absolutely true that these compounds, by and large, are there for the defense of the plant. So plants evolved, obviously, in a myriad of different forms and shapes and manners. But when you think about why does a mango taste the way it is and it, why is the color it is and on and on and on, those compounds, those phytochemicals are there to A, ward off pests, and those pests could be bacteria or fungi that would liquefy the plant, chomp on it, and destroy it. Or they could be beetles or worms, which would obviously do the same. Or they could be mammalian or vertebrate or invertebrate consumers that would eat it. So, you know, there are plenty of instances where the plant tastes awful to the predator and the predator stays away. There are plenty of instances where there are too many to enumerate where the color or the pattern of coloring on a leaf or flower petal attracts certain pollinators and just on and on and on. But by and large, all of these things evolved to, and it truly is, you know, Darwinian evolution. They evolved for the benefit of the plant, not for our benefit. In fact, if anything, we should regard some phytochemicals. It's a bit dicey. Do you include toxic chemicals that plants produce, like nicotine, in the category of phytochemicals? I guess you really should. But so there certainly are very many toxins or toxic plant chemicals. So we as human beings, our diets, at least before 100 years ago or so, 
our diets evolved by selecting plants that didn't kill us, didn't gross us out, didn't poison us. And those are what are now, have been for years, of course, called edible plants or food plants. The other ones are toxic and they might kill us. And someday on another broadcast with someone else, a cultural anthropologist, maybe I'd love to hear other people's opinions of how human beings evolved with this mix of good and bad phytochemicals to come up with the diet that they eat. You know, mm. how many people had to experiment with them and, and die off? Right. But, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, you mentioned 100 years ago, and I'm thinking about what the food system looked like 100 years ago. And one thing that's quite remarkable is that we have become so dependent on importing fruits and vegetables from other parts of the country. So I'm living in the Midwest. If I go to the grocery store, I can bet that most of the fruits and vegetables are going to be coming either from Chile or South America during the wintertime and mostly from California during regular growing seasons. And I worry about those plant compounds. We can call them plant nutrients and how they survive long travel distance. Because it's my understanding that to get the most nutritious vegetables and fruits, it's really best to consume them as close to harvest as possible. So I was wondering if yeah. you have any data yeah. on that. Yes. Let me just go back to your previous question, though, which I just realized I didn't fully answer. So you asked, do organically grown fruits and vegetables have more phytochemicals? So I gave you the sort of lead up to the answer I wanted to give you. The lead up is that there are all sorts of phytochemicals produced and they're defensive. And so the complete answer is, well, when you spray pesticides all over crops and wipe out their natural predators and also destroy, just destroy the soil environment and many of the microbes in the soil and you in the Midwest and corn and soybean fields, you've got almost sterile soil more dirt than soil but so when you do that and the plant doesn't have to defend itself it just grows uniformly which is what everybody wants and blemish free but it in the course of doing that produces less of these defensive phytochemicals very very clear and i'm familiar with some of the work that the rodale institute has done i'm sure not all of it so it's very true that you get a better phytochemical load from organic fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and I'll come around to your to the question about travel and location of growth, but the other thing that I don't think enough people realize is that the whole process, and I'm not damning the horticultural establishment, but the whole process of breeding the uniform easy to harvest or easier to harvest fruits and vegetables that this country and the Western world is under, the whole world really has undergone over the last few centuries. Certainly Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution don't escape some blame for this. But that whole process has dramatically, probably by at least an order of magnitude, reduced the number of different cultivars, varieties, call them what you will, of all of the commonly consumed fruits and vegetables because what happens when plant breeders try to make a better tomato or a sweeter red pepper or a bigger watermelon? They're focusing on a few traits they're selecting for. They still have to select for pest resistance because that's the be-all and end-all. And 
most very often they wind up selecting for higher sugar and sweeter, but the phytochemicals are completely ignored. I mean, that's not a factor in the equation in these breeding programs. Mm. So that's unfortunate, and it's something that should be recognized. National Geographic did a wonderful full-page diagram showing the incredible shrinking of diversity in in our crops, in our fruit and vegetable crops. This was probably between five and 10 years ago. Yes, you know what? Um, I'll share it with our listeners in show notes. I know exactly the image you're talking about, and it is frightening. It is very frightening. So back to transport, yes, I, mean, I think that answer is fairly simple. I'm not, I don't have the data at my fingertips. I know some of it exists, that if you, everything coming from California or Chile obviously has to be somewhat resistant to, or somewhat able to travel in, you know, as long as the cold chain is maintained to travel for a period of days and be stored for probably weeks. So there is certainly some oxidation. There's some loss of various phytochemicals just due to the time oxidation, photooxidation, or, or oxygen oxidation. And yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of, there are journals devoted to food packaging and what sort of breathable plastics and, you know, right. packaging in controlled atmospheres. And sure, all that makes these things last longer. As you know, Melinda, from my history, Johns Hopkins, some of the things I did there, one of my solutions was to say, okay, let's back up. And what about sprouts? Because sprouts of the vegetables that you can make sprouts of easily, they're completely portable. And you can make them yourself. You can make them locally. You can, because you can make them yourself, there's, you know, there's essentially no deterioration of the phytochemicals that are in them to begin with. So that's sort of the ultimate in buying local to me. Of course, not everything can you make sprouts of easily, but anyway. Dr. Fahey, let me take one break here because we're more than halfway through. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. And we are speaking with Dr. Jed Fahey. He is a nutritional biochemist. He was an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he directed the Coleman Chemo Protective Center, which is a leading center for the study and development of plant-based protective agents. And we've been speaking about this class of chemicals called phytochemicals or plant nutrients or plant compounds, all meaning the same thing. Now, what I would like to do, Dr. Fahey, is talk about cruciferous vegetables in particular, because my exposure to phytochemicals really came through my interest in cancer prevention. And cruciferous vegetables were always right on the top in terms of being really potent health protectors. Let's talk about cruciferous vegetables as a whole. What are they? And what is it that makes them so attractive? Sure. So Essentially, the whole time that I was at Johns Hopkins, over a quarter of a century, my group, which was a group that very distinguished professor Paul Talalay started and, and recruited me to join in 1993, was focused on cruciferous vegetables. So in 1992, Professor Talalay and Yushin Zhang, a graduate student of his at the time, discovered this compound called sulforaphane in cruciferous vegetables. And turned out to be, and still is, the most potent inducer of a whole 
suite of antioxidant and cytoprotective, meaning protects the cells, enzymes in human beings and in mammals. And so they had made this discovery in 1992 and published it then. And I started there in 1993. And say really, for the entire then next quarter century, we were focused on cruciferous vegetables, mostly in broccoli, because broccoli is where they found sulforaphane. And then I discovered that broccoli sprouts were a much more potent source of it. So broccoli is a cruciferous vegetable or a brassica vegetable. And it turns out that that family of vegetables is huge. There are, I believe, as I recall, something like 500 edible plants in that category. So broccoli is one that I mentioned. Cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, daikon or Japanese radish, red radish, arugula, and then all the so-called Asian vegetables, bok choy, tat soy, pak choy, Chinese cabbage, kohlrabi, rutabaga. So as you can hear from the sound of it, an amazingly diverse family of vegetables. And they all are characterized by all having not sulforaphane. In fact, none of them that I mentioned have any appreciable amounts of sulforaphane, with the exception of a few red kales. And those are still not a primary, a good source of sulforaphane. But this whole family of 500 or so edible vegetables contains similar, very similar compounds, some more potent than others, none as potent as sulforaphane, but all worth ingesting for their, you mentioned cancer protective, but for their cancer protective and other chronic disease protective attributes. We too, we started out in the, in the early 90s thinking we were looking at a cancer protection play only. And as an understanding of the pathways involved, biochemical pathways involved in the mammalian system materialized, it was clear that this was applicable to a variety of chronic diseases. And just a little postscript to that, there are plenty of people, of course, who don't like broccoli. There are also huge, probably billions of people who live in parts of the world where broccoli is either not grown or not available, and that's fine, because this category of, they're called isothiocyanates, category of plants that contains these sulforaphane-like compounds, is monstrous. And so in the tropics, for example, you and I talked in the past about a plant called moringa, which has very similar compounds. Well, you can't grow Moringa in Ohio, and only in the far southern part of California can you grow it as a crop, And but you can grow it in the tropics. Well, that happens to be a wonderful source of these compounds also. And you certainly can't grow broccoli sprouts in many places, Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, etc. It's unlikely that many people would grow them, let's put it that way, just because of the climate. And, and there's no need to because there's such a diversity other related plants with similar compounds. So there are isothiocyanates in the brassica right. family, but right. it's the sul- but it's the sulforaphane that you have honed in on, and that is only a component of one or two of the vegetables in the brassica family. Is am I understanding you correctly? You are. To be clear about it, it's present at trace level compared to broccoli, very much trace levels or very low levels in handfuls, maybe a couple of dozen different vegetables. 
but it is absolutely not the predominant isothiocyanate in any of them except broccoli. And it's important for you and I as you, a dietitian and a, someone with deep knowledge of nutritional biochemistry and me as a card-carrying nutritional biochemist to emphasize that a lot of the dietitian community and those who preach about healthy eating get this wrong. And they sort of make the leap. They say, you know, they may talk about work that we or others have done with broccoli and sulforaphane, and then they say, well, it's a cruciferous vegetable, and all the cruciferous vegetables have sulforaphane in them, and that is not true. They have related compounds, which may be potent. None of them, as we know it so far, are as potent as sulforaphane. But there's really only one source, and that's broccoli, broccoli sprouts, broccoli seeds. I want to know how you discovered that broccoli sprouts were more potent than broccoli itself. That has to do with climate and proximity to field sites. When Paul Talley hired me in 1993, I started making partnerships with a bunch of people who could grow broccoli on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is near Johns Hopkins. We were looking for factors which might affect the levels of sulforaphane or its precursor, which is called glucoraphanin, in the heads of broccoli. And when the winter came, I couldn't go and visit with my buddies out on the eastern shore of Maryland anymore because they weren't growing broccoli. In fact, a friend of mine had a greenhouse and did grow for us year-round. But other than that, we were sort of restricted to doing our analyses in the lab and various other things. And we, we have looked at a variety of other phytochemicals. So it's not as if we were sitting up in the 13th floor of the hospital building in Baltimore where my lab was and worrying that we had nothing to do and playing uh, Scrabble. But as we were lamenting the fact that there were really no field sites available close by, I started growing broccoli from seed in incubators and analyzing them, of course, as they grew. I won't say it was by chance, certainly not like the discovery of penicillin where a Petri plate was left out over a weekend or a vacation and then penicillium grew. But we, being curious and never throwing anything away, we were looking at all growth stages, hoping to get to some classic broccoli plants in an incubator in a hospital. And, of course, that would have taken a long time and as I recall, we never actually got there because it turned out that the sprouts that we looked at were so much more potent than the market stage broccoli. And in fact, it's the seeds that are most potent. So, But we don't eat the we, seeds. We don't. You can actually toast them and eat them. There is a question of things like aroostic acid content in the seeds that remain there if, you, if you're just eating roasted or toasted seeds. Nobody's used to eating broccoli seeds or any crucifer seeds, but at least a few people in the world were at the time and are now used to eating green sprouts. So that's why Paul and I decided we were going to try to push out the idea that broccoli sprouts were good for you. It turns out that supplement makers, and full disclosure, he and I started a company that started out growing broccoli sprouts and wound up sort of backing up in growth phases and now is making extracts for supplements from broccoli seeds. Let me stop you right there because we just have a few minutes left. What I want to do, because I know our listeners are wanting to know, just a quick rundown 
of what conditions you've looked at for these broccoli sprouts being helpful. And then also, we need a prescription. We need to know how much to eat for benefits. So first off, let's talk about what specific conditions you've looked at that would benefit from eating broccoli sprouts or broccoli if you can't get to the sprouts. Okay. So I don't actually have the list in front of me. And I say that because it has gotten so long that I sort of need to go and refresh my memory. But the beneficial effects, uh, preventive and otherwise, of sulforaphane from broccoli sprouts has been demonstrated in something approaching 100 clinical trials and many thousands of cell culture and animal, primarily mouse, studies. So I've been involved with studies, for example, that have looked at diabetes, looked at autism, or that have looked at really a variety of conditions. It's very difficult to do clinical studies on cancer prevention for, I think, obvious reasons. It's obscenely expensive and long-term, and so in the lifetime of any investigator, it's very difficult to do. But the sort of short list, many neurodegenerative and developmental disease. I mentioned autism. There have been about seven clinical studies. I've been involved in most of them showing some effect. Parkinson's is being looked at now. It's being discussed for Huntington's disease and ALS. Wow. Um, emphysema and asthma. In the kidney, ischemia reperfusion damage. And there have been studies looking at its ameliorative effects on cisplatin toxicity. Cisplatin is a cancer therapy drug. Smoking-related cardiomyopathy aflatoxin and acetaminophen-related toxicities in liver cancer. And in the eye, it's been examined for its protective effect on light damage, uveitis, ischemia reperfusion damage. So the list is really long. Some of those things that I mentioned have been shown in animal models, others in the clinic, as I said. And we do have a paper from just a few years ago or a couple of years ago in which we itemized those clinical human studies. And at the time we wrote it, there were about 75. We talk about the conditions they're involved in preventing or affecting. I will provide a link to your website, which is jedfahey.com. And our listeners can go in and look at those different studies for all of the different conditions. And I'm sure that the dosing or the prescription of these foods will vary based on those conditions. But how much do you eat a day for protection? I would say that I am a home sprouter, and I do grow broccoli sprouts and other sprouts. And I usually eat what would amount to a couple of ounces when I eat broccoli sprouts. That's sort of a standard serving size. And growing your own sprouts is so bloody easy. There is one issue, and that's finding high-potency seeds, because the amount of sulforaphane you can get out of broccoli seeds ranges all over the place. And unfortunately, it's difficult to identify what seeds are better than others. Sure. So one to two ounces, how many times a week? Three times a week, if you want me to pick a number. You don't need to have it every day because this is a long-lasting antioxidant and detoxification effect. You induce protective enzymes that hang around in your body for days. All right. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn 
for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jed Fahey, nutritional biochemist with an extensive background in plant physiology. Thank you so much for being my guest, Dr. Fahey. Thank you for letting me philosophize and discuss my passion. Absolutely. Absolutely. 